everyone, and welcome to another edition of Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Trish. And I'm Maddie. And we're back with you again with a brand new episode this week. This episode actually comes from the sister of a friend of mine and my husband's, also referred to on our podcast as Tech Support. So Tina suggested this case, which I have to admit had been on my list, but I totally forgot about it. So thank you, Tina, for reaching out and suggesting it. If you would like to leave a case suggestion for us, you can reach out to us through our website at criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. On there, we have our contact page as well as all of our show notes and resources where we find our information. You can also reach out to us through our Facebook page, Criminal Discourse Podcast, and our YouTube channel by the same name. And of course, our Instagram page at Criminal Dis Pod. We're on the social media. We are on the social media. Everywhere. So we recently got another case suggestion from a listener that I'm currently researching. So that should be coming out in the next few episodes. And I love when we get them since a lot of them I'm not familiar with. I was not familiar with this one that was suggested. So it expands my true crime knowledge bank, which is not really good for anything other than true crime trivia and talking with like-minded folks like ourselves. Yeah. Don't try to talk to not like-minded folks because they'll think you're really weird. They my, do. Every time I, t- I try to talk to my husband about any case that we do, I get like two seconds and he's like, no, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want right. to talk about it. I'm like, but I want to talk about it. Can we please talk about it? You're the only one I really can talk to about this. Yeah. So we need, actually, we need to get to a crime con so we can be amongst our people. Could you imagine? Yeah, that'd be amazing. It would be. So hopefully- Are they th- still doing crime con? They are, but they're all virtual now. So hopefully once, you know, the majority is vaccinated and things get back to a semblance of normal we can have crime cons and go to one and be amongst our tribe That'd be fun what will our husbands do for that long i don't without care her? i don't care <laughs> i really <laughs> don't they can care. just hold up together <laughs> they can just hold up together they'll make it through all right so we're going to get started right away this episode takes place in williamsport pennsylvania williamsport is a small city located in lycoming county in north central pennsylvania so it's approximately 85 miles north of our state capital of harrisburg like due north, right up Route 15. It is known as the birthplace of Little League Baseball and hosts the annual Little League World Series, where little kids from all around the world descend on Williamsport and play baseball for weeks. Williamsport was also a stop along the Underground Railroad from about 1830 to 1865, where a series of safe houses in Lycoming County were used to transport African slaves from the south to the north and into Canada. I actually grew up in a town with an Underground Railroad stop, which is the town you currently live in. Oh. Where is it? You seriously don't know where the Underground Railroad House is? I don't know anything. Where is it? It's right along the main street. Like when you're coming into the town, it's now was an old tavern. Oh, blank, blank tavern. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know that place. We do. They do like farmer's market and stuff there now. Yeah, that's part of the Underground Railroad. We went to there. Okay, then yeah, I kind of knew that because we went, they did like a um, a back in time. This is and they let you like go into the buildings and they had the blacksmith and everything set up and whatnot. So yeah. So if you went down in the basement, there's a hidden room down there. Oh. That was part of the Underground Railroad. I know it because that's what I passed to go to the liquor store. (laughs) Well, it's right on the main drag, so a lot of people pass it. (laughs) But okay, on your way to the liquor store. All right. So on the evening of January 15th, 1999, around 10, 10 p.m. that evening, 47-year-old Miriam Isles was on the phone with her friend Mary Dixon, who was from Clancy, Montana. 
Now, both friends had been talking for about 25 minutes when Mary heard a noise which sounded like breaking glass. She then heard Miriam say, oh my God, followed by some loud moaning. Now, Mary kept asking Miriam, are you all right? You know, what's going on? And she didn't receive a reply. Now, Mary thought that maybe someone like a third party had broken onto the phone line, and that was the reason she could no longer communicate with her friend. So she hung up the phone and she immediately dialed back, but all she got was a busy signal. So Mary thought that maybe the phone lines had suddenly went down since there was a snowstorm in that area in Williamsport that night. So Mary got up the next day and called Miriam again, this time getting her answering machine. So she left a message for Miriam to call her back. Now on Sunday, January 17th, Susan Van Fleet had become concerned when Miriam had not shown up for church that day. Miriam was the director of Bible studies at her church, and it was really odd that Miriam hadn't contacted her to tell her she wouldn't be able to make it. Miriam was known as being very reliable, also was being down to earth and kind, and she would volunteer her time to community activities. So after church, Susan and her husband, Dwayne, decided to go over to Miriam's residence at 2440 Sheridan Street. Upon their arrival, they noticed the local paper on her porch and mail in her mailbox, which, you know, is never a good sign. So when they rang the doorbell and Miriam's dog had started to bark, but no one had come to the door. So Dwayne decided to walk around the back of the house, and when he neared the back kitchen window, he was able to see in, and he saw Miriam lying on the kitchen floor. Dwayne immediately went back to his wife and told her what he saw, and he felt that Miriam was dead. Susan immediately went to call 911, and when the ambulance and EMT services arrived, Dwayne took them back around the house and showed them the kitchen window, which had a hole in it, and of course, Miriam lying on the kitchen floor. So when Pennsylvania State Trooper William Holmes arrived, he was greeted by Officer Bonnell from the Montoursville Police Department and the Loyal Suck Township Fire Department. Now, all the exterior doors to Miriam residents were locked when they checked. So they tried to gain entry. They couldn't. So the group only gained entry into the home by forcibly opening the rear door to the garage. And do we know how big this hole in the window was? Not very big. So it wasn't like completely shattered and open. I think there was just where the projectile went through the window Mm -hmm. and then the shatter. Okay. So Miriam Isles was pronounced deceased lying on her kitchen floor with a cordless phone lying right beside her head and shoulder, right between her head and shoulder. Trooper Holmes noticed glass lying on the counter near the window and, of course, the bullet hole in the window, indicating that it had come from the outside in. So investigators began a search of the home in the surrounding neighborhood area. So just to describe this for you, she did live in a neighborhood, so she She wasn't out in the middle of nowhere. She had houses on either side of her. She had houses, you know, on the other side of the street. And behind her house was a little bit of a yard, not a huge yard. And it ran like it came to like a little wooden area, like almost a stretch of wooden area. But right on the other side of this wooded gully area was tennis courts Mm -hmm. and like a tennis center. So it wasn't again, like there wasn't... It wasn't secluded. It wasn't secluded in any ways, right. So Marion's property did back up to that wooded gully and Trooper Kirkendale of the Pennsylvania State Police found tracks in the deep snow to the south of the residence along her property line in the back. The tracks led to a small tree located about 73 feet from the back of the house. So not not a long distance. So following the tracks led up to the embankment and next door to the next door neighbor's property and that led off into the wooden gully to the tennis courts that were in the back. So investigators determined that when you stand in Miriam's kitchen 
and look out the kitchen window where the bullet had entered, you look right at the small eight-inch tree at the edge of the gully. So there was a clear line of sight. So when Trooper Kirkendale stood by the small tree, he noted one footprint measuring 13 inches, and that was directly in line with the tree and the embankment itself. Trooper Kirkendale, who was also a firearms instructor, felt that the shooter would have been right-handed, as a person would typically extend their left foot to shoot with their right hand and vice versa. Also how you throw an axe, which I've recently done. (laughs) So he also noted that it was from this exact spot that you could look directly into Miriam's window with nothing impeding your view. So Trooper Kirkendale felt that the footprints he found showed one person had traveled to the small tree and one person left the same way traveling along the same tracks leaving the area by the tennis courts which were behind the property. So Dr. Samuel Land, a forensic pathologist, conducted Miriam's autopsy on January 18, 1999. He concluded that Miriam died of a gunshot wound in the back fracturing her left lateral ribs. When the bullet fragmented entering her body, it caused a journey of destruction to the sac surrounding her heart, her aorta, and upper lobe of her lung, destroying multiple organs along the way. Dr. Lan opinion that Miriam would have died within seconds or up to a minute, no longer, once she had been shot, and that the gasping or wheezing sound that Mary Dixon had heard was most likely a death rattle. Now, a death rattle, because I did look that up, is when someone is dying, their heart and lungs begin to fill with fluids. And when a person takes a breath, that fluid mixes with air and makes that gurgling sound. And when they expel that air and blood, it comes out like a rattle-like or wheezing noise, similar to when I exercise. I'm just going to throw that out there. (laughs) So Dr. Land felt that Miriam was able to make the oh my God statement as there was still air in her lungs, but she died shortly thereafter. So Miriam Isles had been married to Dr. Richard Isles, but they were currently going through a divorce and it was not pretty. Miriam and Richard had met in 1991 at St. Louis University Medical Center. Dr. Isles was in residency there for heart surgery. Now Miriam Isles worked at the medical center as a perfunctionist, which I also didn't know what that was, (laughs) so I had to look that up. So a perfunctionist is a healthcare professional that works the cardiopulmonary bypass machine, so the heart-lung machine, during cardiac surgery, which this maintains the blood flow and regulates the oxygen and carbon dioxide in a patient's blood. That's an important job. You want somebody who knows what they're doing. Now, the two dated for about a year before they married, and this wasn't Dr. Isle's first marriage. I think this might have been his second, possibly his third. Well, when she was, what, in her late 30s, early 40s then? The 99, she was 47? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she would have been, yeah, late 30s or so. And I believe it was her first marriage. So once they got married, they about a year later, they returned to York, Pennsylvania, which was where Dr. Isles was originally from. And he got a job at York Hospital as a cardiothoracic surgeon. But he didn't stay there long as he felt a competing group of surgeons didn't want him around and was making his job difficult. So he took a job with the Susquehanna Health Systems in November of 1994 in Williamsport. That year, Dr. Isles and Miriam had their only child, Richard Isles Jr., and he went by the name Richie. Now, Miriam had left her job as a perfunctionist when Richie was about two years old to devote herself as being a full-time mom which is a job in its own right. Mm -hmm. If two days of homeschooling have taught me any of that since we've been (laughs) off because of snow. (laughs) So by 1998, Dr. Isles and Miriam's marriage was in trouble, both seeking attorneys with Dr. Isles claiming that the couple had formally separated as of February 20th of that year when Miriam had traveled to Atlanta, Georgia with Richie to visit her family. Now, in her mind, I don't think this was a separation. In his mind, he took it as that's the date they formally separated. Now, friends would report that Dr. Isles 
Miles was very controlling husband. He was very volatile towards her. And in that, that he would put her down with a lot of disparaging remarks. I never got the physical abuse, but the psychological, the verbal, the emotional, yes. Like if things were not done to his expectations, oh, he let her know about it. Like this is when dinner is served. This is how it's served, you know, kind of things. Mm -hmm. I know you're looking at me like I have no idea what that's like. like. Oh, is this in like Why Women Kill? Like, do you see that show? You know what I'm talking about? No, but yes, that's Why Women Kill. Okay. I haven't seen it, but I'm going to say, yeah, that's how they kill. So Miriam also believed her husband was having an affair with one of his assistants. So they both went into this divorce like he's saying well you left the marriage and she's saying well you're having an affair so around this time Richie was about four when the divorce proceedings started and Marion was really worried about the custody and financial issues that would arise from their divorce the couple had a significant joint bank account and on the advice of counsel he directed Marion to go to the bank and withdraw it all so Marion not really feeling comfortable doing that she only took about half which was about $300,000 now when Dr. Isles found out he came to the bank fuming and he just was yelling at them like how could you do this and they're like uh it's a joint bank account she has access to it so he ended up closing that bank account and then opening one only in his name so she couldn't get any more money out and things would get uglier from there dr isles in retaliation filed for custody of richie and wanted to stay in the marital home with all of its possessions so basically it's all mine get out so Miriam's attorney filed a counter petition on her behalf Now, in the end, Miriam did decide to move out of the marital home, one, to get away from him because he was being unreasonable. And I don't think she felt very safe. And she did so in late March 1998 and rented a home on Sheridan Street. So in May 1998, both of the Isles attended a court hearing concerning child support and spousal support issues. Miriam had confided in friends that she was afraid of what Richard would do if he had to pay her support. So a temporary order was issued on May 22nd of that year, and it required Dr. Isles to pay about $1,150 a month in child support and a little over $7,600 in spousal support per month. So this is a totaling over $8,700. And it was retroactive back to the end of March. So this came out in May. The judge said, you got to pay all this since the end of March. Now in July, Dr. Isles claimed that Miriam was not entitled to any spousal support since she voluntarily left the home to visit family. That's why he kept saying she left. She's the one that left, so she doesn't have support. And she's saying, yeah, that was a visit to Mm -hmm. visit my family in Georgia, and I came back. So both filed exceptions to the order on August 31st, and an order was entered into, this time entitling Miriam to child support in the amount of $5,500 per month and spousal support in over $7,800 per month. So now it went from $8,700 to over $13,000 a it month. It doesn't seem like they liked Dr. Isles very much in this. I'm not thinking, I don't know how he came off in court, but I don't think he came off well. And do we know like the custody situation? Like did Miriam have Richie full time? I think it was split or at least Dr. Isles had visitation. I didn't read anything that it was 50-50, but I, they did share custody. So this was the largest award ever ordered in Lycoming County at that time for anybody to pay for a spousal and child support. So at the beginning of October, Dr. Isles' attorney contacted Miriam's attorney, indicating that Dr. Isles, he wanted to just finalize their divorce, claiming that Miriam was only drawing this out so she could continue to receive support. So this seemed to all come to a head on January 7th, 1999, when a hearing was to be held on their various petitions. And it was described as a pretty heated day. And in the end, Dr. Isles would not leave a happy man 
man. It doesn't sound like he left a happy man with any of these proceedings. And it would be one week from that hearing that Miriam Isles would be shot dead in her kitchen. Now, four days after Miriam's death, Dr. Isles' attorney would contact the Lycoming County Domestic Relations Office asking for the wage attachment that had been on his paychecks to be removed and also terminate child support payments as Miriam was now deceased. They didn't wait long. So back to the investigation. So back to January 17th, Trooper Dean Benedict with the Pennsylvania State Police working in conjunction with Montoursville Forensic Unit discovered a black object that looked like a silencer inside the area of the tennis courts. He had been retracing the footsteps as they had moved away from the scene. And keep in mind, there was some snow on the ground at this time. And he also noted that there were no footprints inside the tennis court. So he felt that whoever had put it there had thrown it over the fence on their way leaving the property. The silencer was sent off to the Pennsylvania Crime Lab and broken down to see what its components were. The silencer was made up of PVC pipe covered with spotted paint with absorbent filler material that surrounded the inner portion of the silencer and a wire with two end caps. The silencer had 73 holes in it, and the purpose of these holes was apparently to allow the propellant gases to escape. The silencer was also tested for traces of lead, which was shown to be positive, leading them to believe that a lead projectile had gone through the silencer. It had been used. So around 5 p.m. on January 17th, state troopers interviewed Dr. Richard Isles at his residence. Now, Dr. Isles stated that he and his five-year-old son, Richie, had returned to the area after visiting the areas of Honeybrook and Downingtown for the weekend. He had gone to Miriam's house to return their son, and that is when he found out about Miriam's death. Now, at first, Dr. Isles had appeared very upset when he was told, but within minutes. His demeanor appeared to change to detectives and he answered in a very matter-of-fact manner. So State Trooper Holmes noted that when Dr. Isles was told of his wife's murder, he asked, quote, was there any evidence found? Unquote. Okay, I'm going to hold my thoughts on that. We'll come back to that. (laughs) So Dr. Isles told the troopers that he had arrived at Miriam's house around 5 p.m. that Friday to pick up Richie for the weekend. He had planned to go away for the weekend, either to his cabin to snowmobile or to visit his sister who lived in Honeybrook or to his brother's house who was in Downingtown. Now, for those of you who don't know, Downingtown is down near Philadelphia. So after leaving Miriam's house, he had gone to his office first to finish up some paperwork, then off to Burger King to pick up some dinner, arriving home around 637. So he He had then planned to take Richie to his father's house, who was also in the Downingtown area, leaving the area around 9.30 p.m. Now, according to Dr. Isles, road conditions were slick due to the ice with the storm that had come through on Friday. But the pair had stopped at the McDonald's in Lewisburg when Richie said he was hungry. So if you're going south from Williamsport down Route 15, you'll run into Lewisburg, which is kind of between Williamsport and Harrisburg. So later investigations would show that there was no precipitation in the Williamsport area from Friday evening and none leading on to the 16th. This was also true of the Sealings Grove area and the Harrisburg area, so all the places he would be driving through. A snowstorm had hit the area on January 15th, but it ended early in the morning, like between, well, 10, 15, and 1130. But records would show the storm had been a difficult cleanup because of the freezing rain. But by the time he said he was leaving, maybe not so much. So since road conditions were deteriorating, according to Dr. Isles, he decided to stay at a hotel for the night somewhere south of Sealings Grove. So he called his sister, Sue, on his cell phone, informing her of his plans. And this was around 1130 that night. So Dr. Isles told investigators that he really couldn't find a suitable hotel 
until he reached the Harrisburg area, arriving at a Hampton Inn on Route 283 around 1 a.m. Now, on Saturday, Dr. Isles and Richie did stay at his sister's house in Honeybrook, and on Sunday morning, they went off to his father's house in Downingtown, arriving back in Williamsport around 4 p.m., and then they went off to Miriam's house at 4.50, where he was informed of her death. The troopers wanted to speak to Richie that night, but Dr. Isles wanted a child psychologist to be present before they did so, so they weren't able to because there wasn't a child psychologist present in his home that night. So another interview with Dr. Isles would take place on February 10th, 1999. This This is almost a month later. Three weeks later? Mm, Yes. She died January 15th. So this is February 10th. So yeah, almost a month later. And this time it's at Dr. Isles' attorney's office. So this interview was focused more on the details of his trip out of town that Friday, including the reason he didn't stop at any of the hotels along the way. Like not only are there hotels in Sealings Grove, you also have Shemokin Dam. I mean, there are are a lot of hotels. Yeah. My my great-grandmother used to live up there. And it's that's what as soon as you said that, that he couldn't find anywhere suitable until he got to Harris. I was like, there's tons, tons, tons. of places and some, most of them better than I am than in. Like, it's not like you can say, oh, well, I need to be in this, you know, five star hotel. Right. So Dr. Isles told investigators that he did stop at the Sheridan Inn around 1220, before he got to the Hamden Inn. This is also in the Harrisburg area. But there had been a busload of people arriving at the same time. So that's when he decided to go to the nearby Hamden. Now, the Sheridan Inn and the Hamden Inn, they're relatively close together. So I was kind of like, why did it take you so long? if you didn't arrive at Hamden till 1 a.m. Just keep that in mind. So Dr. Isles told investigators also that he did own several guns and that included shotguns and rifles with a variety of ammunition and he would often make his own wooden stocks for some of his guns. They were kind of asking him to nail down his trip but also asking about firearm possession. So investigators found out that the Isles divorce was a nasty one and looked into any life insurance monies that Dr. Isles may have had out on Merriam. The New York Life insurance company would tell investigators that Dr. Isles had a $250,000 policy out on Merriam since he took it out in 1994, where he was the sole beneficiary. Now, Dr. Isles also had a policy out on him. It was worth $750,000, and that policy was initially had Merriam as the beneficiary, but he changed that on July 6, 1998, when he changed it to his son's name and his then-girlfriend, which I thought, okay, I get your son. I don't really get the girlfriend. So since Dr. Isles was a member of the plan, he could change the beneficiaries at any time he wanted, but Miriam, of course, could not. Now, Dr. Isles could have also stopped those premium payments on Miriam's policy when they separated, but instead he continued to pay them with his last payment in December of 1998. Mm. Mm-hmm. So Marion's policy was in good standing at the time of her murder. Dr. Isles attempted to claim the policy in February, but the insurance company did not pay it out as her murder investigation was still underway. So investigators also discovered that Dr. Isles had contacted his trash removal company on Monday, January 18th, just days after Marion's murder. Now his normal trash pickup day is on Tuesday the next day. But Dr. Isles claimed that his trash hadn't been picked up for weeks, so he wanted him out there that day to get it. So the Pennsylvania State Police contacted the trash haulers, wanting to have a look at Dr. Isles' trash after they picked it up, but they missed the first initial trash pickup because they didn't find out he had called them till a little later on. They did, however, get to look at his trash from February 2nd. 
So investigators discovered two open tubes of super glue and a two and one fourth inch pieces of wire. So looking at Dr. Isle's trash from February 24th, investigators found a rifle barrel that had six drill impressions on it. Investigators decided to serve warrants on Dr. Isle's residences on February 23rd, 1999. So this included a cabin he owned in Potter County, his new residence in Mount Crescent, and the previous marital home on Lamont Drive. Now, at his Lamont Drive residence, investigators found debris on his workshop floor that appeared to be scrapes, appeared to be scraps of expandable foam and PVC piping in the basement storage room. Now, at his new residence, investigators seized a Ruger 22-250 rifle with a scope along with various tools and a 22 caliber semi-automatic Beretta handgun. And the end of the barrel of that handgun, I read, had been cut off, which I thought was weird for a handgun. For a handgun. So I thought, I don't know if that was a mistake that I was reading because I was like, wouldn't that be more the rifle being cut off more than the handgun? So investigators photographed a book they had found on Dr. Isle's nightstand in the master bedroom. And this book was entitled, They Wrote Their Own Sentences, The FBI Handwriting Analysis Manual. Little light reading there, I guess. So at Dr. Isle's cabin, investigators found expanding foam insulation there as well. Now, before the search warrants were even being issued, Dr. Isles had contacted the state police to report that his current residence had been broken into and it things looked to have been moved, but he declined to have the state police take a look around. Just call in to tell you it looks like someone broke in and... But don't come look. But don't come look. Yep. So after the warrants had been served, Dr. Isles had a conversation with Dwayne Van Fleet. Remember, he originally discovered Miriam's body, telling him he was concerned about what police would find as he felt someone was setting him up. So on March 1st, 1999, Dr. Isles' attorney contacted the Pennsylvania state police, informing them that he had received a letter written in pencil on plain white paper. The postmark on the envelope was February 27th, 1999 from the Williamsport Post Office. This was four days after the search warrant was served and investigators had photographed that handwriting analysis handbook. Okay, so the letter had block printing with the anonymous writer stating, quote, in all cap letters, I shot Miriam, claiming the Lord ordered the writer to quote, harvest the wicked racist ones of this town, unquote, and that the writer made it look like Dr. Isles had murdered Miriam, signing the letter, soldier of equality, soldier of God, soldier of death, apparently all three. (laughs) So the letter appeared to investigators to have been wiped down with something leaving streaks on the page. Investigators also found a hair attached to the letter. Now, no fingerprints were found when processed, and investigators felt that was the purpose of wiping down the letter to move any prints that might have been left. Now, on May 4th, 1999, Dr. Isle's attorney received another anonymous letter postmarked May 3rd. Whereas the first letter was a single sheet of paper with writing on both sides, this time the letter was on two separate pages. Both had been addressed to Dr. Isle's attorney and both written in pencil with block lettering. This letter stated, quote, Dr. Isles could not have been the killer of his evil wife, basically claiming the writer had superior intellect. You really shouldn't have to tell people you have superior intellect if you have superior intellect. Let that be a little criminal dispod life tip. Yeah. And that this writer had fooled investigators. The writer also claimed that he had purposely erred in his last letter to his identity, boasting that he had advanced degrees and was fluent in several languages. And his IQ was higher than any police officers. The writer went on to claim that he was sorry for ruining Dr. Isles's life. Not stopping there, he went on to write about the wire that was mentioned in the local newspaper when Dr. Isles' trash had been searched, which had matched the materials 
rifles in the silencer. Quote, I had free access to his home while he was on vacations and used many of his supplies to fabricate my equipment. How convenient. Oh my goodness. I also bought him a book about FBI handwriting analysis. I left it on his nightstand. Correct. (laughs) So in closing, he writes that this would be his last letter since I'm moving out of the area. And he signed it again. Soldier of God, soldier of equality, soldier of death. Now in the second letter, the author talks a bit more about himself with descriptions conveniently resembling Dr. Isles's medical partner, a Dr. Zama, who was ruled out early on in the investigation as having anything to do with the murder, as he had a solid ironclad alibi. He was friends with Miriam too. I mean, he knew her, but again, you know, when looking at an investigation, you're going to look at anybody close to the victim. And of course, business partners, was this a retaliation for something? So he was ruled out early, early on. So again, no fingerprints were found on the letter. Now, remembering the photographs of the book on the nightstand, investigators obtained a copy of that book and noted some of the suggestions in the book seemed to coincide with the anonymous letters that the lawyer had received. No way. What? So letters printed in pencil are not susceptible to chemical testing. And that hand-printed letter are difficult to compare to other writing samples, especially in the block lettering. So the book also gave some case scenarios that had similarities to Miriam's case, such as wife being murdered, husband a suspect, and an anonymous letter implicating someone else. What? <laughs> he took it right from the book and left the book there. I'm always, I'm just so, I, yeah. Well, he is highly intellectual, as he stated. So on June 4th, 1999, a fisherman looking for minnows in a creek in the south of Williamsport area off of Route 15 in the Sulphur Spring Road found a small loaded rifle lying along the creek bed. Now, Route 15 was the same road that Dr. Isles would have traveled the night of Miriam's murder. The man removed the clip and immediately took it to police when showing them exactly where he had found the rifle, which is about 15 to 20 feet off the road on the bank of the stream. So the rifle itself was a rare Savage 23D, which was last sold in 1949. I had to look that up. I was I'm not a gun enthusiast, so I'm like, I don't know what this is. So the clip for the rifle was a 22 Hornet, which was an unusual caliber, and the barrel of the gun had been sawed off. Now, since the location of the weapon was in state police territory, the gun was transported to the barracks and entered into evidence. During Miriam Isles' autopsy, bullet fragments, a lead bullet core, and a bullet jacket were recovered and showed four lands and grooves with a right twist. So meaning the bullet that was fired from the murder weapon had four lands and grooves, and the bullet itself was a 22 centerfire caliber class, which was consistent with a 22 Hornet. So when investigators became aware of the rifle's discovery, they had the gun examined to see if it could be connected to Miriam's murder, and they determined that the caliber of the bullet was the same and the bullet removed from Merriam and the bullet in the clip were the same type of lead and consistent with having been manufactured together. So the rifle when found had been purposely altered with the barrel having been ground down and had numerous drill impressions throughout it and the serial number had also been obliterated. The gun stock also looked to have grind marks on it. However, the silencer that had been recovered could easily fit into the barrel and a screw that had come down to lock the silencer in place perfectly matched. The meaning that the rifle could have been the murder weapon. So everything's lining up here that this could have been the murder weapon. Investigators test fired the weapon using the replica silencer, setting up a scenario where a silhouette target 75 feet from where the weapon was being fired. Each time the trooper was able to hit the target in the same area Miriam was shot. So on January 4th, 2000, Pennsylvania State Troopers interviewed the sister 
of Joseph Kowalski, who Dr. Isles had a close relationship with, and he referred to him as Uncle Joe. Now, I also read that he had later confided Dr. Isles had in Dwayne Van Fleet that Uncle Joe was actually his father, but then in various other articles I read, Uncle Joe may have been his godfather. Irregardless, they had a very close relationship. So Uncle Joe was a gunsmith in the military and had worked with guns all his life, but sadly Uncle Joe had died the summer of 1998 having given most of his guns to his sister. Now, after the interview, troopers were given a list of all the guns Uncle Joe owned and a photograph showing Uncle Joe holding a rifle in one hand and a groundhog in the other. Now, the gun in the photo was a Savage Model 23D rifle, that rare, rare rifle that was found off Route 15. And so when comparing the list of guns recovered in the search of Dr. Isles' home, though, the Savage Model 23D rifle was not among them. So in December 2002, though, the police felt they had enough circumstantial evidence for an arrest warrant. At this time, Dr. Isles was, had moved out of state. He was living in Washington near Spokane. Well, he had said he was leaving in his letter. Oh, wait. Wait, that was an anonymous person there. So Dr. Isles was working as a plastic surgeon at the time as he couldn't find a job as a cardiothoracic surgeon as someone kept sending press clippings to prospective employers about his wife's murder investigation. That'll do it. Yeah, you don't really. I'm surprised he was hired as a plastic surgeon even. And I understand there were lawsuits brought against him for that because he wasn't trained as a plastic surgeon. Well, yeah, that's what I was like. I feel like when I even go to a regular doctor, I kind of look up like who the doctor is and whatever. And I feel like if I were going to a plastic surgeon, it was like, oh, yeah, he's been a cardiothoracic surgeon. I'm like, okay, well, what does that have to do with my face or anything else? Like, Correct. No. I don't know who sent those press clippings, though. <laughs> that's I, try I to don't find know, that. but I like them. Yes. <laughs> I vote yes. Good for you. So after his arrest, a search warrant was obtained for his new residence where Dr. Isle's computer was taken into evidence. Now, during the search of his computer, technicians found an unfinished manuscript entitled Heartshot, Murder of a Doctor's Wife, with the author listed as Richard Isles. The manuscript talked about potential suspects in Miriam's murder, as well as what the killer's thought process was while waiting outside Miriam's home, which was done on several occasions, waiting for the right shot. And that came during the seventh visit. Other occasions hadn't panned out, like the one where Miriam's dog started barking, just as the killer was about to take aim. The manuscript also noted that the killer had taken measures to throw off the police, and even described the shooting of Miriam by the killer. Dr. Isles writes in the manuscript that the killer had steadied the rifle on the tree limb while Miriam was talking on the phone before shooting her, and then having 10 minutes to escape the area, with his car being parked down the street, congratulating himself and feeling orgasmic catharsis for another mission well done. That's from the manuscript. The manuscript itself was only two chapters long. Chapter one, the shot no one heard. Chapter two, the road to Williamsport. So on March 24, 2003, state troopers again searched the area off of Sulphur Spring Road where the rifle had been found. And that is when they found a pair of Reebok size 14 sneakers. The sneakers were found about two tenths of a mile from where the rifle had been found. Now the sole pattern of the sneakers was similar to the tracks found in the snow at the scene at Miriam's murder. The soles measured 13 inches, the same length found at the crime scene. Now, Dr. Isles wore about a nine and a half shoe size, nine and a half, ten. So during the investigation, various hairs had also been found on pieces of evidence. A hair had been found stuck to the glue of the second anonymous letter. Hairs were also found on the silencer. I think there might have been two or three hairs on the silencer. Also, a cigarette found at the crime scene, not with a hair attached, but having DNA that didn't match any of the other DNA extracted from the various hairs. So the investigators really had like five pieces of DNA 
none of them matching each other and none of them matching Dr. Isles, leaving them to conclude that someone was planting evidence. So five years after Miriam's murder, Dr. Isles stood trial for first-degree murder. Prosecutors laid out their case as to what happened the night of Miriam's murder. Dr. Isles picked up Richie, and before returning to Miriam's house, he had given him a drink laced with drugs that rendered him unconscious. He then parked his vehicle behind the wooden gully and tennis courts and made his way to the embankment behind her house. Prosecutors and investigators believe that Dr. Isles' one fatal mistake is he did not see her on the phone at the time. So this actually pinpointed her death. Even though he wrote about it later, I don't think he knew she was on the phone. After shooting her, Dr. Isles dropped the cigarette at the scene that contained someone else's DNA which they feel he might have gotten from the hospital. And then he twisted off the silencer, putting three different hairs inside of it, none of them matching, and threw the silencer into the snow-covered tennis courts. Now, his motive for doing all this, of course, was the bitter custody battle over Richie and not wanting to pay Miriam any support. So at trial, the state called Catherine Fostick as a witness, and she testified to her connection to Dr. Isles. Now, Catherine had met Dr. Isles in 1992 when she was training to become a perfunctionist. She actually knew Miriam. I believe her and Miriam were friends. And in 1995, Miriam actually contacted her about a job at Williamsport Hospital because she was leaving, you know, to raise Richie. So in February 1998, Dr. Isles told Catherine that he and Miriam were separated. And in March of that year, the two began a romantic relationship and moved in together in May or June of 98. After Miriam's murder, Dr. Isles had told Catherine that he felt someone had a vendetta against him and that his life was in danger. So Catherine's like, well, can you turn on? Can we get an alarm security system for our home? As she was afraid, but he refused saying, well, we're going to be moving soon and I'll get one for the new home. So Dr. Isles also expressed that he was afraid that he would be arrested for his ex-wife's murder, even though the anonymous letters exonerated him. Mm, Not really, but... (laughs) I guess you can think that. So in June 1999, both Catherine and Dr. Isles had traveled to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania and had met with attorney William Kostopoulos. And if we remember back when we started our uh, criminal discourse podcast, our first case, Susan Reinhardt's murder. Remember, doctor, do you not remember this attorney? William Kostopoulos was Smith's. Oh, attorney. Okay, okay, okay. Yes, who got him out. We've done so. Do you know how long ago that was? Like that 77 was like, episodes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, no, I did not remember that attorney's name, Trish. Okay. My bad. You failed our trivia night. <laughs> so, apparently, during this discussion, they had talked about a list of countries that didn't have extradition treaties with the U.S. I guess that's just some knowledge you want in the back of your head. It was also around this time that Dr. Isles obtained a passport for his son, Richie, and purchased a book titled How to Hide Your Assets and Disappear. He's got to stop with the books. Oh, my God. Yes. Dr. Isles. He has superior intellect. So in July 1999, Dr. Isles and Catherine had a discussion where Dr. Isles admitted to her that he had drugged Richie after they had returned to the area the night of Miriam's murder as Richie was inconsolable. So he didn't admit to drugging him the night, you know, she was murdered. It was after returning to the area when he was inconsolable. So in July 31st, 1999, the couple had decided to marry. I'm not sure what Catherine was thinking, but the marriage only lasted two years before they started to divorce. Now, Catherine testified that near the end of their marriage, Dr. Isles would refer to her as a greedy bitch, just like he had done with Miriam when he was angry at her. Do we see a pattern? Mm. Yes. So 
Dr. Isles decided not to take the stand in his own defense. Probably the best decision of his life. Correct. So did they have anything from the first wife? Do we know anything about her? No, I couldn't find anything on her. I was just curious. See how far the pattern went. Oh, I'm sure the pattern went the same. Yeah. I would imagine. So after Dr. Isle's five-week trial, the jury deliberated for two and a half days, coming back with a verdict of guilty of first-degree murder on February 20th, 2004. Dr. Isle's was sentenced to a life sentence without the possibility of parole. Now, the jury up to the night before the verdict reported that they were hopelessly deadlocked, but the judge ordered them to continue deliberations before they finally reached a verdict. So there was one juror that was a holdout who was not sure that the rifle could be linked to Dr. Isles. But after the jury reread the transcript of the testimony of how Dr. Isles had inherited these rifles, because he had gotten some of uncle, his uncle or godfather or father's rifles the summer before Marion's murder, this juror was convinced then, like, oh, that's the connection I needed to make my verdict. So a week after his conviction, Dr. Isles did attempt suicide by cutting his wrists with a paper clip. And this was while he was being held in Lycoming County Prison. He lived. So today, Dr. Isles is housed in the State Correctional Institution in Erie, and he seems to be spending a lot of his time behind bars filing lawsuits against various prison officials. One such lawsuit was that Dr. Isles felt was a violation of his privacy when he was housed at SCI Camp Hill, which is State Correctional Institution, in August of 2010. Dr. Isles felt that the prison psychiatrist violated his right to privacy when he had talked to him at the door of his cell instead of a private location. Now, prison safety issues at that time did not allow the removal of prisoners to private locations, and Dr. Isles knew this and agreed to have the psychiatrist come speak to him, so he knew he was going to come to his prison cell door to talk to him, but then he turns around and he tried to sue him for violating his right to privacy. That case was found moot by the civil court. So today, Dr. Isles still sits in prison. Good. So he did not have superior intellect. No. I mean, he might have been a good surgeon. I don't know about that. But clearly, he did too much. Not that I want to tell people how to get away with murder, but like, dude. Well, and it's like he realized that he messed up and then it's trying to cover it up with everything else. Well, yeah. But I mean, look at the thought process. I mean, this, first of all, don't ever write a manuscript about how you'd get away with it, aka OJ Simpson. That didn't work out well either <laughs> if I had done it, you know, kind of thing. But in this case, I mean, he's he's using shoes that are too big for his feet. Mm-hmm. That's to throw him off. He's gathering all this different DNA, like too much DNA, and he's leaving, purposely leaving the silence. You know, it didn't slip out of your hand, dude. You purposely threw it over into the tennis courts to be found. And your timeline of events don't match up. Like mm-hmm. it shouldn't have taken you that long. Like to get from Harrisburg to Williamsport area. Now, back in 99, it was a little different because I don't think the highway's completely done, but literally should have only taken two and a half, three hours at most. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, you left around 930. You're not getting to the hotel till 1 a.m. I yeah yeah well that and using like this rare rifle Mm. i feel like that was mistake number one because even and you see it like with that juror and again not to say like how to get away with murder but like if it had been an everyday thing where they couldn't make that connection right to that specific gun or even connected the gun to her murder right then they may never have had enough to put him down but it's just like yeah if you read the appeal and i think i have that in the show notes in the resource section of that it is interesting there's so much more in terms of forensic evidence that they had That Mm -hmm. was way complicated and over my thought process to try to put that into the podcast. But it is interesting how hard they worked to build the case against him. Even after he was arrested, they were still looking for evidence to make it a, a solid case. 
So I also want to take a moment before we end here to thank Kismet23 for leaving us a lovely review referring to us as a hidden gem and likes that they stumbled upon us, which is usually how people find us is usually stumbling upon us. So thank you again for taking the time to leave us a review. And if you've liked what you've heard today, we would only ask that you leave us a review on whatever platform it is you listen to us on. And if you leave a five-star review, we would appreciate it even more. So like we always end the show, if you see something, say something. You might have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve a crime. Like the guy who found the rifle in the clip in the creek. And as always, we want you to stay safe. Antibacterial smell lingers Mm -hmm. (laughs) in our household. So, but we're hopefully coming here to an end and life can get back to normal for us a bit. So until next time, we want you to be safe. Let's watch out for one another. And also remember, especially in these times, we need to be a little kinder to one another. So until next time, guys, bye. Bye.